Ah, thanks, you guys. I appreciate that. That's very kind. I wanted to be your friend, too. Yay. Okay. It's fun how that works out. Well, I'm excited to be with you today. We are in our Chapel Core series, which is basically taking a week and kind of looking at some of the fundamentals of faith, some of the basics of Christianity, and we cover a lot of different topics. And this year, our Chapel Core, uh, this semester, we are covering the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've got to hear from our, some of our amazing CCL faculty already on some of those chapters. And today, I get to talk to you about Matthew 6. And we're going to kind of keep going along uh, at the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest teaching that we have of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. And the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful because it's really a framework. It's kind of an all-encompassing framework for our Christian life. It gives us this overview of what it looks like to walk out our faith. He's addressing the core of who we are and the things that can trip us up and how we can address them in order to live a life that honors God. And so today we're going to look at Matthew 6. So my first question is, who's got their Bibles? Okay, I'm a pastor. Okay, who's got a paper Bible? Let me say that again. Okay. So this is, this is extra. Since we're in Chapel Court, and, and listen, my husband, my husband Jeff is over here. Um, we pastor a church in Farmington we planted seven years ago. And so I am a pastor at heart. So my first thing I'm going to say to you is bring your Bibles to church. Bring your Bibles to chapel because it is important that you have this paper copy with you. Now, let me explain something. We, we have four kids, and I remember um, a few, you know, maybe when Lucy, our oldest, was about eight years old. I remember we had had her in church, and she was learning Bible verses and all this kind of stuff. And what we realized was although she was learning Bible verses, she wasn't learning the context of where they were. She was seeing like one verse on a screen kind of pulled out. And I know a lot of you, maybe in your generation, you've learned kind of like bits and pieces, but there's something about taking this whole thing, turning through the pages, knowing where it goes, being able to look and say, okay, I see this verse. What is in front of it? What's behind it? What's in front of it? So taking your Bible with you, you get chapel every single day. You can write notes in there. Remember what speakers have. Jeff and I still pull out our Bibles from when we were students here, and we have notes written in it from chapel speakers that we heard 25 years ago when we were students here in North Central, okay? So here's what I do. I teach Thursday night discipleship to my kids, and here's what we do. We do what's called a sword drill. Who knows what a sword drill is? Okay, so we're going to do a sword drill today. I have prizes. What that means, if you don't know what that is, don't cheat. Close your Bibles. I'm going to give you a reference, and you have to find it, put your finger on it, the first person to stand up, and you put it on your head. That's the winner of the sword drill. You ready? Everybody's got their Bible closed? Ready, set, go. Matthew 6, 1. Go. Who's got it? Matthew 6, 1. Put it on your head. There you go. All right. You were first. Here you go. I have candy. Also a great spiritual principle. Christians and food will always win. You are second. You can come up here. We are not above bribing people to read the word of God. There you go. Okay. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Jesus begins this portion of his message by addressing three areas 
that would have been especially important to his audience. Three areas where the Jewish leaders would have focused their attention on teaching people how to be devout. And uh, Dr. Pruitt talked about them a little bit yesterday. Generosity, prayer, and fasting. These were three fundamental practices of the faith. But Jesus is going to challenge them that it's not just that you observe those three practices. He's going to talk to you about how we observe these practices. So let's read it together. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, you have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen, Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So let's dig a little deeper into this. What is Jesus addressing here? Is this a hard and fast rule regarding public ministry and teaching? Is Jesus saying that you should never, under any circumstances, let someone, let anyone see your generosity? No. Just a few verses before, we talked about this yesterday in Matthew 5, 16 through 19. Jesus told them, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, right? So that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This tells us that people seeing our good deeds can lead others to praise the Lord. And in 1 Chronicles 29, when King David is gathering materials to build the temple, he tells the entire nation a detailed list of what he's going to give. I'm going to give this much gold. I'm giving this much of this. He gives an entire detailed list of what he is giving. And then he says, now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord? And then we see the people respond to his leadership in giving. This is a spiritual principle I've seen over and over again as we've led churches and raised money for buildings and projects and for the work of our church. Jeff and I have been honest as leaders saying, hey, this is how much we're going to give and we want to invite you to join with us. And we've seen this unlock a heart of generosity in people. So Jesus isn't giving us a hard and fast rule to never share our generosity with others. 
And is Jesus saying in verse 5 that we're never to pray corporately or in public? Well, again, let's look at the whole of Scripture. We see that Jesus very often prayed in public. In the Old Testament, we see many times where people prayed public prayers, including Solomon, Ezra, and even Daniel, who we know specifically opened his window to be visible to pray and then openly defied the law of King Darius. There are many times where praying in front of people is absolutely appropriate. And does verse 18 mean that we should never tell anyone about our times of fasting? No, I will say that as a pastor who's constantly thinking about how to help our people grow spiritually, sharing my personal practice of fasting at times has been very appropriate. There's a lot of people in my church who have never fasted before and don't know anything about it. And so me sharing with them how God has used this discipline in my life to help me overcome obstacles, to fight for things in the lives of my kids, and to battle the enemy, this is vital. So there have been times that sharing my practice of fasting has been very appropriate. So what is the deal here? How do we know when it's okay to do these things, and how do we know when it's not? So I want us to go back and read some of those passages of Scripture again, and I want you to do it with this, these questions in your mind. Why do you do what you do? What is motivating you? And what reward do you want? Let's look at this again. Verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Why? To be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, you've received your reward in full. What's the motivation here? Why are you doing what you're doing? Look at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. What's the motivation here? What reward are they looking for? And look at verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces. Why? To show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. What is the motivation here? Three things. To be seen by others, to be honored by others, and to show others what we're doing. Jesus is teaching us a fundamental lesson in this passage. He is putting his finger on something that will creep into your spiritual life and hijack even your very best intentions. Seeking the approval, the attention, and the admiration of others. That's the real problem here, isn't it? That's really what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't making a hard and fast rule dictating the number of people who are allowed to watch you pray or fast or give. Jesus is telling you that when you do any of these spiritual things, your motivation matters. The condition of your heart matters. That you can be doing the very best thing for the wrong reason, and that your very best spiritual practices can become idolatrous if you are using them to prop up your own self-image. Jesus is diagnosing something in us 
that he knows it has the capacity to absolutely take us out, seeking the approval, the attention, and the admiration of others. Why? Because when we build our lives on what other people think about us, we are building our lives on sinking sand. If the approval of others is the gauge of our confidence, we are going to find ourselves in a lot of trouble. Let me ask you this. Any perfectionists in the house? Oh, you guys aren't even shy about it. (laughs) For sure. How about any overachievers? Yes, awesome. People who are driven to succeed to be the very best. I started, listen, I just started grad school here. Guys, I'm taking classes too here. And I did my first discussion post. We didn't have discussion posts back when I was a student here. And I did the first one, and then I made Jeff come look. I said, read them all. Do you think I'm winning? Do you think, do you think my post was the best so far? So I might fit in this. Like, I really like to win, right? How about this side, though? Anybody insecure? Anybody shy? Anybody unsure of themselves, and so you hide? Isn't insecurity really another form of approval addiction? right? The fear of, of, uh, m- fear of others can motivate us to either outperform or to totally hide. It's really the same fruit, right? So what is motivating you to do what you do? What is the motivation behind it? So this is an area of my life that God has been working on forever. I feel like it's always the thing. It will probably be the thing as I take my last breath of God. I'll go, hey, are we, how are we doing on this thing? And when I was younger, this need to please others showed up as crippling insecurity. I just was a mess. I just didn't feel confident about myself, my abilities, unless other people were pleased with me. If someone was not okay with me, I just could barely even function until I figured out how to make them okay with me. Then I found some things that I was good at. I found my gifts and my talents that made people notice me and would say, wow, you did a great job with that. Good job. Wow, that was great. And so all of a sudden I realized, this can help right? If I can be impressive, this is going to help. And so my approval addiction began to show up in perfectionism, working harder than anyone else. If I could do things better than anyone else, and if I could keep impressing others and keep their approval, I could keep myself feeling okay. And then it showed up in workaholicism, if that's a word. When my kids were young and we were on staff at a big church, my drive to keep doing more and more and more and more kept growing and growing and growing, and it got to the point where it was almost going to kill me. And I finally hit a wall, probably 10 years ago, when I realized that what I thought I was doing out of a love for Christ and a desire to please him had actually turned inside out And I had allowed my need for others' approval to become the motivator in my life. And because I had built my foundation on the opinion of others, I was now a slave to the opinions of others and what they thought of me. So I had to keep working harder and harder to maintain that. And it led to resentment and bitterness and burnout and exhaustion. And then I went through a particularly difficult season of my life where I just felt like I couldn't do anything right. Anybody had one of those seasons? It's like everything you try and do just fails. 
And everything I was trying to do was not working. I was facing an extraordinary amount of criticism, which was rare because usually I could figure out what to do to help fix that. But I could not fix it. I kept trying to fix things. I was messing stuff up. I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I felt like God in that season allowed my very best efforts to be absolutely frustrated. I felt misunderstood. I felt like a failure. I felt beat up. I just was a mess. And so I remember one night I decided I was going to go to a Joyce Meyer conference. She was downtown. And so I drove in from the burbs and I went all by myself and I climbed to the very top and I sat there all by myself and I was really ticked off at God. And I remember sitting there going like, okay, Lord, I am working my tail off for you. I am doing so much. I am trying so hard. And all I do is feel like I can't do anything right. I'm failing. I feel like a punching bag. How long are you going to let this keep happening? You're supposed to protect me. You're supposed to make sure that when I'm working this hard for you, that everything's going to go okay. How long are you going to allow this to happen? And I will never forget the answer the Lord gave me. He said, it will keep going on until you are more concerned with pleasing me than you are with pleasing other people. I still feel it in my gut today, even as I tell you. The revel, it was like the, the scales fell off my eyes, and I saw how much of my work had shifted out of a genuine love for the Lord and a desire to serve him. And instead, it had turned into, are they okay? Are they all right? What should I do here? Is that all right? And it had turned into this constant trying to manage my world and I was trying to make everybody in my world happen, happy. I'm embarrassed now to say that my need to make everyone else happy had grown to such a level that I couldn't remember the last time I asked myself, Lord, am I, doing, am I pleasing you? I was deeply motivated to try and fix all the conflict and criticism and failure so that other people would be pleased at me. But I had stopped asking, God, is my life pleasing to you? This began a total shift in my heart. I am not near perfect at all, but let me tell you, I'm not where I used to be. And in these verses, Jesus is diagnosing this exact human condition, and he is giving us an antidote for the tendency that we have to build our lives upon the shifting sands of what other people think about us. Let's look again at what Jesus says. Verse 3, he says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Look at this. Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. Verse 6, when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to your father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it is not obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who has seen what is done in secret will reward you. The antidote for seeking the approval, attention, and admiration of others is to deeply seek the approval of God. Let me ask you this. Is a reward from Jesus enough to motivate you? Is the approval you get from him for obeying his voice enough for you? 
Are you willing to practice your faith in ways that no one else sees simply for the joy of serving Jesus? Even if no one sees, even if no one knows, is a reward from Jesus enough? What are the rewards that he gives us? First, he gives us the reward of confidence. Listen, seeking the approval of others leaves you at the discretion of how they view you from day to day. But when your life is grounded in the desire to please God alone, that cannot be shaken by others' opinions. But if you gauge your confi- if the gauge of your confidence is built on Jesus, how Jesus views you, friend, you've got no greater champion than him. We think that the approval of others will fill us because we like gods that we can touch, right? It's like the, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, right, when they created the, the idol out of gold. They're like, yes, we know about this God, but where's the God we get to touch with our hands? Where's that one? And this is what we do when we make people our idols. Yes, God, I, I know your reward is great, but God, could, could you send other people too to also give me that reward? that I can touch with my hands. It's a part of what we do as people. But by shifting our attention just to saying, Jesus, are you pleased with me, is the absolute core of our confidence. Philippians, in Philippians, Paul tells us, we put no confidence in our flesh, our flesh or other flesh. We cannot put our confidence in other people. And if you will let go of your need to please others, you will find the reward of confidence in your life. You will find the reward of your feet on solid ground, not fluctuating with how well you're performing or how well you're liked. The second reward God gives us is the reward of balance. Needing to be impressive can be exhausting. Any amens in the place? Yeah. Trying to be perfect is overwhelming. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That bee is killing you. I can't handle it, right? But knowing that you are secure in who you are in Christ, even if you mess something up or you don't do something perfect, it's incredibly freeing. If you are exhausted because you can't say no to anything or anyone, I invite you to see the reward of balance from Jesus in front of you. Here's how it works. Hey, Jesus, is this something you want me to do? If he says yes, you say, awesome. If he says no, you say, no. Not, are they going to be mad? Are they going to okay? What if I don't do that? Are they gonna, right? We know how that works. But Jesus, is this what you have for me? Yes or no? That is incredibly freeing. Then you're free to say no without guilt because he is the one ordering your life. The freedom of balance is one of the most beautiful rewards that Jesus gives us. And lastly, the reward of intimacy. Let me tell you, when I began to learn this lesson, when my heart began to be knit into his, when he began to be the rock I was building my life upon, there is a depth of knowing that cannot be duplicated by any human being. Not my husband or my children or my boss, or my friends, or my church people. He is my life. 
The thing that I cherish the most that I learned after my season of failure and difficulty, the reward that I treasure in my heart more than anything else, is through that experience I learned to fix my eyes on Jesus, and I found him to be more beautiful and strong and worthy than I had ever imagined. It's this idea of, you know what, it's just you and me. It's just you and me. I can bring everything to him. That intimacy with Christ, I wouldn't trade for anything else in the world. Before that, listen, there were a whole lot of people involved in my walk of faith. But now, it was all stripped away, and I could simply say, Lord, are you proud of me? And the depth of love in my heart for Jesus just began to explode when I realized how incredibly kind. He's way kinder to me than I'm ever kind to myself. And when you fix your eyes on him and begin to say, Lord, I just want to please you. My life is to bring you glory. God, how can I serve you out of the love in my heart? And as I close today, the band can come up. I want to look at this last portion of Scripture that's found right in the middle of this beautiful teaching. Did you notice that the Lord's Prayer is right here? It's kind of interesting because we always quote it, you know, outside. But when you think of where this is found, it's kind of interesting, right? It's right in the middle of this teaching. This very fundamental prayer is nestled inside this incredibly fundamental teaching of Jesus on the need to guard against the approval of man. There are so many things I could say about this prayer I can't even begin to get into all of them, but I want to highlight one today as we wrap up. And it's this, the first line of verse 9. This is then how you should pray. Our Father. Our Father. Now, why does that matter? As I studied this week, this absolutely stood out to me. In the Old Testament, the central theme of God as a father was actually pretty rare. As a matter of fact, God was referred to as Yahweh, a name so sacred they wouldn't say it or write it. And all the gods they had ever known were big and powerful and distant, and their prayers required certain rituals and incantations and in order to please this God who cared nothing for his subjects but simply needed to be appeased, needed to check the right boxes. And contrast this to what Jesus has just said to the people about seeking the reward of God above all things. And then he talks about how to approach God, and he says, call him our Father. The greatest reward in seeking the approval of God over the approval of man is intimacy with God the Father. You get to know that you are loved by your Heavenly Father. It's not based on anything you do or don't do, it will not fluctuate on how good you're performing. It does not shift based on some days when you do great and shift some days when you do not so great. It's the absolute security of knowing you are loved by your Heavenly Father. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads for a second. I want you to just take a few minutes and be really honest with yourself. What is motivating you? Are you building your life on what others think about you? Are you gauging your confidence on your performance, your ability to do things perfectly? 
Are you hiding because you're terrified of what other people might think about you? And let me ask you this. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of trying to do it all right? And base all of this on the opinions of others? Don't you just long to walk into the embrace of God your Father and just say, Lord, if you're pleased with me, that's all I need. The antidote for all of these things is to simply seek the reward and the approval of God alone. So, Lord, we come to you today and we ask, shine the light in our hearts, Father. You know us. You know everything about us. You know every motivation. Father, you know the places where we have built our confidence on the approval of how good we're performing the approval of what other people see or say about us, how much we're doing for you. And Lord, I know that 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 is sinking sand. And so I'm praying today, Father, that you would just begin to pluck out all of those seeds of performance, of needing to please others, and I pray you would replace it with a deep, deep desire to please you that it would become you and me, that we would look at you for direction, for security, for confidence, for balance, that, Father, a reward from you would be enough. We're asking you, Jesus, to search our hearts and help us sort this out. We want to live lives pleasing to you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen. I'd like them to just maybe lead us in a song. Why don't we stand together? Let's just take a minute, and let's just seal this in our hearts. Maybe you want to come and pray. Maybe the Lord has put a specific thing on your heart that you need to lay down. Maybe you just need a few minutes to just kind of lock this into your heart today. So they're going to lead us in a song, and then you can be dismissed.